Our text this morning is found in Philippians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians 3. And while you're turning there, I want to ask the question, what is our biggest problem? What is our biggest problem? Is it external? It feels like in 2020 it might be sickness, coronavirus, cancer. Um, It could be institutional as you fear about the future of our country or as you feel the sting of injustice. It might be your career, or it could be internal, perhaps something more subjective like um, a desire for satisfaction or to not be alone, a desire to experience something meaningful in this life, to be a part of something bigger. All these problems, the Bible tells us, they're symptoms of a bigger problem, namely our sin and the fact that apart from Christ, we are separated from God and under His just condemnation or His wrath, that is His anger toward our rebellion. And the central question of our text this morning, and this is kind of our big idea in reverse if you're taking notes, is how are we justified before God? How can we sinners be regarded as sinless? How can we, the unrighteous ones, be considered righteous? So how are we justified before God? And we'll see two approaches in the text. This is how we'll split it up. Verses 1 through 6, we'll see confidence in the flesh. Verses 7 through 9, confidence in Christ. So how can we be justified? Two approaches, confidence in the flesh, confidence in Christ. And that's not to say they're both viable options. They are mutually exclusive. And only one ends with us being found in, clothed by, engulfed in the righteousness of Christ, and therefore accepted by the Father. One resounds in acceptance and adoption. So that's our question this morning. How are we justified before God? Our text is... Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 3, 1 through 9, these are God's words. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless." But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Amen. You can be seated. So as we've been walking through the book of Philippians, Paul was dealing initially with his affairs. He turns and addresses some of his concerns for the Philippians. They are experiencing external pressures as Rome is um, bearing down on their church. They are experiencing um, internal issues as they are struggling with unity. And now Paul turns his attention to one more issue. It's external If it makes its way to Philippi, it will come from a group of people called the Judaizers. And it's doctrinal. It deals with the gospel. 
what we think the gospel to be. Are we saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or are we saved, as the Judaizers would have us think, by grace and merit, by faith and works, by Christ and the law? So how are we justified before God? We consider the first approach, confidence in the flesh. Verse 1, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. I want to highlight two things. It doesn't directly fit into the main point of the text, but I want to note the value of repetition and reading in the Christian life. Okay, Paul is writing them. He says, again, it's not clear if he's writing, you know, like Philippians, Second Philippians, or if he's meaning he's just writing about these things again that he's talked to them about in person. Namely, these Judaizers who are adding to the gospel. But he expects that um, they're under siege or attack, so to speak. And so he is willing to write to them again. He says it's of no trouble for him. He's repeating himself. You might find yourself this morning even tempted to tune me out because for the next 35 minutes or so, I'm going to just preach the gospel. That's really what our text is about. And it's not an evangelistic sermon. Um, in the sense that it's for the non-Christian, though I will preach the gospel, I will preach the gospel to any non-Christians who are attending with us, but it is for the Christian. Paul is repeating himself, and he does it by means of writing. He knew that they were under siege, so he picks up a pen, and he expects them to pick up his book, so to speak. One of the surest safeguards for the Christian is reading, and reading Scripture in particular. No doubt they would have received the book from Paul. It would have been read in their gathering like we read Scripture this morning. It would have been exposited as I am attempting to do now by God's grace. So it would have been read. They would have heard it. It would have been preached. They would have heard it. Paul sees that God has given us a mind that we might think well about him, and it's a means of safeguarding us. This is true for Scripture in particular. And then I think of just reading in general. This is one of the reasons why we give out a lot of books. (laughs) And it might seem odd to you. It's not because we think, Um, It's a sign of maturity, how big your library is. But one of the means by which God matures us, protects us, safeguards us, is through reading. Paul gets this, he writes them, and then we get to really the meat of it. Verse 2, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. So at at this point in time, the city of Philippi is actually overrun by dogs. No, it's not true. Paul's warning them about a group of people called the Judaizers. They're basically anti-missionaries. So Paul would show up in a city, he preaches the gospel, then they would come in afterwards to do what they thought was cleanup. So imagine for you teachers, anytime you teach, and then this kind of teacher from a different school comes in and reconstructs everything that you've done. Acts 15.1, we see this. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's basically their message. You're not saved by Jesus plus nothing. That's enough. That's not enough. You're saved by Jesus plus obedience to the law and specifically or especially circumcision. Now, a modern, uh, maybe equivalent for us might be something like the Roman Catholic Church teaching that you need to be baptized to be saved, that you need to partake in the Eucharist, that you need to observe penance. I think among Protestants, evangelicals especially, tends to be more inconspicuous. We say, yes, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but deep down we think it's G- if you're saved, if you're truly Christian, then you must 
believe in Jesus and vote Republican. You must believe in Jesus and be woke. If you're familiar with the book of Galatians, Paul writes them what is a really scathing rebuke because they have turned from the true gospel to this gospel that the Judaizers are putting forth. And Paul is determined to not let what happened in Galatia happen in Philippi. So he begins with a warning. Three descriptions of the same group of people. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. I think it's obvious, but calling someone a dog is not a compliment. (laughs) Okay, you tweet that in 2020 and you'll get canceled. But... I don't think we really grasp it because we love dogs. Okay, let's just, by show of hands, who in here loves dogs? Yes, most people. If Paul had said, beware the cats, now we would maybe get it. Shots fired at DJ. Um, Well, in Greco-Roman culture and in Jewish culture, dogs were considered the lowest of the low of creatures. They were ritually unclean because they ate garbage, carcasses, the word for dung that Paul uses later. If you've ever been to an undeveloped or developing country and to a city and you've seen a pack of like mangy wild dogs, that's probably more what they have in mind. So if you've been, I've been to India and Ethiopian cities there and have seen packs of mangy stray dogs. You don't, you don't pet those dogs, <laughs> okay? You get rabies just looking at them. This is their kind of conception when they say dogs. So why is Paul calling them jaw- dogs? Well, Judaizers, like many Jews at the time, regarded Gentiles, that is, non-Christians, as dogs. That is to say, they are outside the people of God and, in a sense, subhuman. Well, Paul, I think, savagely and ironically reverses the tables and calls them the dogs. He goes on, watch out for the evil workers. Again, they think themselves to be doing God's work. But Paul says they're actually doing evil, not good. He says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so this is kind of the issue at hand. They think that they're bringing the Gentiles into the people of God by circumcising them. They think they're doing holy work. And Paul says, no, you guys are just mutilating people. Like you belong more in a Saw movie than in a church. They think they're mediators, but they are mutilators. And this is what I love about Paul. And I think this is a wonderful model for all of us, is that he can say both of these things. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Philippians chapter 1. Look at the way that he talks about the Philippians, verse 3. I give thanks, my God, for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Verse 7, he says it's right for him to think this way about them. Because I have you in my heart. Verse 8, for God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. His letter time and time again, it's dripping with love and affection and care for the Philippian church. And yet he says, watch out for the dogs, for the evil workers, for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul's not being rude just for rudeness sake. He's using theological irony to destroy the teaching of those who would seek to destroy the gospel and the people of God. Good pastors and good church members do as our church covenant says. We exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully encourage and admonish one another as occasion may require. It is a loving thing for the people of God, when appropriate, to call out those who would seek to destroy the gospel, like prosperity peddlers, like liberal churches, like cults, 
It's not about being derogatory. It's about preserving, protecting, and preaching the one thing that matters, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 gives us the reason we watch out for him, and it serves as a contrast. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. So we begin, we are the circumcision. It would be helpful to explain what circumcision was. God gives circumcision as a sign of the covenant to Abraham, to him in Genesis chapter 17. So before this, God has had people, but not a people, so to speak, and there is no way to identify him. So the first thing that circumcision does is it creates the people of God in kind of a geopolitical sense. How do you know who the people of God are? Well, they are the ones who are circumcised, and it's how you're granted entrance into the covenant community. It's not identical with, but similar to baptism in the new covenant. And so it marked off the people of God. It's how you join the people of God. And then the, it did a few other things, but two other things worth highlighting it was a constant reminder to them, to the men in particular, that because they had some of their flesh cut off, that what they needed was their entire nature to be cut off. They were in need of a new heart. If you want to read about this, I would encourage you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, chapter 10 and chapter 30 this afternoon. And then it also was a constant reminder to them that if they were disobedient to the covenant, that they too themselves would be cut off from God and his people. So circumcision was never intended to save. You can look at the first, probably five or six verses of Romans 4 to see more about that. But what it did was it showed who the people of God were, it granted entrance to the people of God, and importantly, it looked forward to a time where God's people would indeed have those new hearts. And Paul, he does something remarkable here in that he says, in contrast to the Judaizers, and in contrast to the Jews, we, those who are in Christ Jesus, are the circumcision. That is, we, Jew and Gentile, together are the people of God. And it has nothing to do with something fleshly like our ethnicity, nothing to do with our cultural upbringing, whether or not you grew up in a Christian home. It has nothing to do with whether or not you've done something to your flesh. It has nothing to do with our works. You see, they might command circumcision. They might conduct circumcision. They themselves might be physically circumcised, but we are the circumcision. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. Paul can be more clear. You can be a Jew ethnically and not be one inwardly where it matters. So what matters is, it does matter whether you've been circumcised or not. What doesn't matter is whether your flesh has been circumcised. What matters is whether your heart has been circumcised. And what Paul is saying is that we are the circumcision. They're actually on the outside looking in. They are the dogs, so to speak. He goes on, they are the mutilation. We are the circumcision. They are, or we are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. So we worship by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? Paul's drawing off of Old Covenant ritual worship or cultic practices. It would be, it's a wrong caricature to say that the Old Testament was an entirely external religion. But it is true in that all that was required to be a part of the people of God was being born and circumcised. So a lot of people, they worshiped God, but they were not actually 
um, regenerate. They didn't have the spirit. They were just doing external practices and not actually worshiping God. And Paul is saying that we actually worship by the spirit of God. He seems to be drawing off what we have in John chapter 4. It wouldn't have been written yet, but Paul is probably familiar with the oral tradition. If you're, if you're familiar with Jesus, he's at a well with a Samaritan woman, someone who would have been regarded as even lower than a dog to the Jews. And she points out to Jesus that you guys say we worship in Jerusalem, but we say we worship on this mountain. Jesus responds in verse 21 of chapter 4, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship you, right, the Samaritan. You will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. There is this movement of place from worshiping on a mountain or in Jerusalem to worshiping in Christ by the Spirit. Jesus is both the object and the place of worship, and it's made possible through the Spirit's indwelling. The Judaizers and the Jews, they might not realize it, but they've given themselves to something that is external or fleshly, whereas we are worshiping by God's grace through His Spirit. And then we come really to the climax, verse 3, For we are the ones who boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh is its trust or reliance upon anything other than Christ for your standing before God. So it might be how you answer the question. If you're a non-Christian, you might especially think about this. If someone were to ask if you died today and God asked you, why should I let you into my kingdom, what would you say to him? Whatever your answer is is where your confidence is. And if you're a Christian, I get that you know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but deep down, where do you put your confidence? You might ask yourself, what is your backup plan to Jesus? Do you really believe God is accepting you because of Christ's merit and mediated death, or do you cling to something different? Maybe you think God accepts you because you've never done anything really bad. You've been able to avoid the particularly nasty sins. Maybe you think God will forgive you because of how consistent you are in your quiet times or how good you are at confessing your sins to other, others. Maybe you think God loves you because you share the gospel a lot. Maybe you think you're in good standing with God because you give a lot of your time and money to the church. Maybe because everyone in your family is a Christian. I think a good litmus test for us on where we put our confidence in, it might be hard to think about as it relates to God, you might think about how you compare yourself to other Christians. Do you consider yourself more righteous because you lead a Bible study? Because you started a nonprofit? Because you work in urban education? Because you've been a Christian longer than someone else? Or because you're obviously more zealous than everyone else you know? Christian, in what ways are you tempted to put confidence in the flesh. You could think of the flesh here as your spiritual resume before God. And the Judaizers are teaching that we ought to put confidence in works, not just in Christ, but in works for our standing. They're saying when you stand before the judgment throne of God, you need to be able to point at your baptism, your church attendance, your giving record, your devotional life. And what Paul's about to do is, verse 4, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. There's nothing more annoying than being one-upped, 
right? It's like, I caught 10 fish. Well, I caught 15 fish. It's like, great, you got more fish than you lost a friend. <laughs> but Paul is about to one-up them in the best kind of way. He's going to flex on them. He says, you think you have reason to boast? Well, I have more. He lists seven things on his spiritual resume, so to speak. The first four privileges, and then the last three were choices, you could say. Verse 5, he describes himself, his reasons for confidence. He says, circumcised the eighth day. So Jewish boys were circumcised on the eighth day. If they weren't, they were cut off from the people of God. Paul says, check. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. It's not just that Paul was circumcised. He was circumcised the eighth day. You see, a Gentile could convert, so to speak, to Judaism, and they would be circumcised at whatever age they were. But Paul's saying he's from the nation of Israel. He can show you the tribe, Benjamin. He doesn't need Ancestry.com. He knows. A Hebrew born of Hebrews. Paul is just stressing how Jewish he is. Because the Jews were in diaspora, many of them had basically converted to Hellenism or Greek-type culture. Paul is saying that he... His parents were Hebrew or Aramaic speaking. They weren't Hellenized, and he's resisted it too. So Paul is putting forth this resume showing he, from the privileges of being a Jew, he is a true Jew. And then we move into what might be regarded as his choices regarding the law of Pharisee. So there are various schools or sects among Judaism. Pharisees were the most influential, and they were the most faithful, you could say, in their understanding of the Bible. Whereas the Sadducees, as an example, they didn't believe in angels or demons, resurrection from the dead. They're kind of like our modern-day liberals. Paul was a conservative Old Testament reading and believing oral tradition following Pharisee. To put it in contemporary language, it's like Paul saying he's Protestant, evangelical. We might go as far as to say Reformed and Baptist. And then verse 6, regarding zeal, persecuting the church. This one's a bit jarring for us because it's, it sounds like terrorism, and I think in a sense is tantamount to terrorism. But Paul would have grown up on the stories of men who were so zealous for God's glory that they were willing to use what at the time was appropriate violence. So in Numbers chapter 25, the Lord brings a plague on Israel because the text says they had prostituted themselves to the Moabite women, and they had abandoned God for Baal. Okay, so God brings this plague on the people. Moses commands the judges to kill anyone who is found not with Yahweh, but with Baal. The entire, all of the Israelite camp is gathered together by the tent of meeting, and they are weeping their sin in God's judgment. And then a man comes in with his Moabite mistress, like all cavalier, doesn't care, walks in, takes her into his family's tent. Then Phineas zealous for the Lord and eager to protect God's people, grabs a spear and drives it through both of them. And the Lord's anger is averted. The plague stops. This, though Paul, what I think he was doing was terrorism, this is what Paul thinks he's doing. He's like, you think you're zealous with your little circumcision blade? I was straight up killing Christians in my zeal for God. And then we come to what is the climax regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. From circumcised on the eighth day to regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Paul's not saying that he's sinless. He's not saying that he's perfect. But just as objective as his being a Benjaminite or his being circumcised on the eighth day, you wouldn't look at Paul and say, well, yeah, he follows the law except for these kind of few areas. With, to the best of his abilities, with all the strength and zeal, he obeyed the law. He maintained the purity rituals. He received forgiveness through the sacrificial system. He was completely above reproach. 
So whatever quote-unquote righteousness is available through the law, through confidence in the flesh, Paul was blameless to it. He had it. So Paul is a hammer down. Anything you can do, I can do better, and I did do better. If you, have, if you think you have room for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I am the true Jew. If that's what saves, I got it. The problem is the law was never designed to forgive sins or give life. That's because the expectation before the law is perfection. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law was not intended to save. It was intended to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. You could think of the law in one sense as a window into heaven. As we look into it, we see the righteousness of God. But it also functions like a mirror in that it shows us our unrighteousness. What we see looks less like a man and more like a monster. It wasn't intended to save. It cannot and it does not. And if your confidence is in your flesh, you will be disappointed and eternally so. We turn now to our second approach. How can we be justified before God? Not by putting confidence in ourselves, but in Christ. That is by receiving Jesus through faith apart from the works of the law, by trusting His works and His sacrifice for sins. Verse 7, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. So Paul puts the human situation in accounting terms. So for all of you accounting nerds or budget lovers, I actually think I came out earlier and Hunter and DJ were talking budgets. <laughs> and Jess and a bunch of our friends over there, they're always talking YNAB, the budget app that they use. So for you guys who love numbers, money, this is for you. Paul's saying, gains here are assets, losses are liabilities. So everything that Paul considered to be a gain, that is an asset, money in the bank, his being circumcised on the eighth day, him being an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin of the Hebrew Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding righteousness and the law, blameless, everything he thought was going to give him right standing before God. Everything he thought God would look at and say, good job, Paul, welcome into my kingdom. Paul realizes all those gains, those assets, were losses. They were liabilities. What he thought gave him favor before God actually added to his spiritual bankruptcy. What he thought was benefiting him was actually destroying him because it blinded him to the depths of his depravity and the gravity of his need for grace. Again, there's nothing wrong with being born into a privileged position, like being born into a Christian home where you're hearing the gospel preached regularly, you're hearing hymns sung and texts read, but I think many of us can attest to this in our testimonies. The problem for us was that we spent much of our lives thinking that we were Christians when we were not. That we were blind to our need for the gospel. Perhaps, if you're a non-Christian, you might think this now. If you're a Christian, hopefully you don't think this way. But you maybe have thought about when you die, you'll stand before the judgment throne of God, and as though there's this scale. And you're just hoping that all the good things you did outweigh the bad things. And if that's the case, the Lord will allow you to enter into His kingdom forever. The problem the text says is you don't actually have any gains. Apart from and before Christ, you don't have any good works. Everything we've done is tainted by sin. Our good works, they don't remove our debts. They 
add to them. All your attempts to put your confidence in the flesh were crimes against God because they were nothing more than attempts to boast in yourself over and against Him. Apart from Christ, we are in the red. Hopeless and helpless, spiritually destitute, bankrupt. Verse 8, more than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. So all of your good works, your merit, all of your good works, I can't merit your standing before God, but I think what Paul's getting at is why would you even want them to? Consider the exchange. What Paul thought were gains were actually losses. And he gives that up to gain Christ. He gives up what he's found out to be his dung for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only is life apart from Christ futile, but it's foolish because you're choosing the infinitely lesser thing. I'm not sure if you caught in the text, but Paul says, because of him I have suffered the loss of all things. All those things that Paul was putting his hope in, his reputation among the Pharisees and his tribe with his family, he has lost all of them. I think in a real tangible way would have lost his relationships, his career, his standing, everything. And what he's realized is those things he was putting his confidence in compared to Christ are dung. We have a large German shepherd. I think he's big. He's like 85 pounds. It's like this huge animal in our house. Many of you have met him and know him. He even likes a few of you in return. For the first year of his life, we crate trained him. They say it's a good thing to put a big animal in a cage for extended periods of time. I don't know. Well, one day, and this is Jess and I were both working out of the house at this point, I remember coming home, opening the front door, and just being hit by a wall of stench. And I followed my nose through the fog as it got thicker and thicker. I made it into the guest room. I opened the door where Mac's crate was. And though Mac was in his crate, it was like he got out and pooped everywhere. <laughs> I mean everywhere. Like on the walls, on the curtains, on the carpet, all over himself all over his crate, everything but the ceiling, and then got back in and closed the door. And it took, I mean, it took at least an hour to clean the room, to clean him. I would have to stop because I was gagging so hard. It was in the middle of the summer. He'd been sitting it for so long. It had crushed over everything. And this, this didn't happen just once. It happened twice. You see, poop is not a positive thing. It's not like we walked in and it's like, Mac left money everywhere. It's not even a neutral thing. It's an offensive, worthless, repulsive, disgusting thing. The things, even the good things that we think justify us before God apart from Christ are not positive things. They're not even neutral things. They are offensive, worse, worthless, repulsive, filthy things compared with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. His value is so much infinitely greater that it's worth losing everything. Or we're not even losing something good. We're losing our dung. This is the most lopsided transaction in history. The only thing we bring is our debts, our liabilities, our crimes, our sin, our rebellion. And in exchange for them, we get Christ, His righteousness, His friendship. We lose everything, whatever it was that we might have boasted in apart from Jesus, to gain something that is of surpassing value, to gain something that is 
glorious and infinitely satisfying knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, it's not just that you can't merit your favor before God, and you can't. No amount of law-keeping can deal with your sin problem. But why would you even want to? The options are a life of slavery to the law as you white-knuckle your way to heaven only to find that you have been opposing God the entire time. Or knowing Jesus, which is of surpassing value and infinitely satisfying. I'm not sure if you got that, but it's not just knowing about him, not just signing off on a statement of faith, not assent to a web of beliefs, but knowing him personally and intimately. Paul had lost all these things, and he's experienced the reality of Jesus Christ, that we can know Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, our brother and high priest, our creator and friend. The one who, though in the form of God, took on the form of a slave to die in our place for our sins. For Paul, this has to be incredibly striking because he was one of those dogs, one of those evil workers, one of those mutilators, one of those who was persecuting the church and persecuting Christ himself. And if you think that you're too far from grace, I hope that you hear this especially. Paul was one of them. He describes himself as a chief of sinners. And on the road to Damascus, he experiences the chief of lovers. Jesus. Now we, like Paul, we have offered God nothing but our rebellion, and he offers us his mercy. What a mind-boggling reality that the Son laid down his crown to take up our cross and our crap, so to speak, to give us his love and his righteousness. You see, it's a happy thing to exchange all things crap to gain the most valuable and satisfying of all beings, Jesus Christ. To reference Jim Elliot again, but to paraphrase him this time with a twist, it's not a stupid thing to lose a crappy thing to gain an infinitely more valuable thing that you cannot lose. What we thought were gains were losses. We happily give those up to gain Jesus. Verse 9 and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. On the day Jesus returns, we will either be found in Christ, hidden in him, clothed with this righteousness, given as a gift from God, grasped through faith, or we will be standing on our own, clinging to our own righteousness from the law, which is actually debt and dung. We see these two approaches coming to a head here. Look at verse 9 again. I'm not sure if you caught it. There is righteousness of my own from the law, and then there's righteousness from God through faith. Friends, would you rather be standing clinging to your righteousness or God's? There's our righteousness from the law, then there is God's righteousness, which is a gift through faith. It's given in Christ. We talked about this problem earlier. Is it internal? Is it external? It's internal in that the problem is with us. We're sinners. We sin against God. It's external in that God's wrath is upon us apart from Christ. And the solution to God's problem is external as well. It comes from God himself that he supplies the righteousness we need. It's legal or forensic. What that means is if you're in Christ, even though you're a lawbreaker today, which we know if you had heard Josh's confession, even though we're lawbreakers today, God looks at us and finds us in his son. 
he sees his own righteousness. We will stand before the tribunal of God, fully acquitted, completely forgiven, without condemnation, justified and adopted. The Father looks at you and sees the Son. He sees the Son and he sees you. This is, of course, the good news of the gospel. If you're a non-Christian, we want you to hear this, especially this morning, that the answer to our biggest problem, our sin and God's wrath against us, has been dealt with by God himself. That God the Son became a man, that he lived perfectly on our behalf, that he was righteous according to the law, having his own righteousness. That what we should have done, he did for us, and what we deserved, law-breaking, what we deserved, condemnation, he absorbed on the cross on our behalf as God poured out his wrath on him. It's as though we had a life of debts, And Jesus had a life of gains, and he gives those gains to us, and he takes our debts on the cross. And of course, three days later, in victory, he rose from the dead and offers us eternal life. The surpassing value of knowing him, gaining him, being found in him. If you're not a Christian, we would tell you not to delay any longer, to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. Any member of our church would be happy to talk to you afterwards about the gospel of our Lord. And if you're a Christian, what a comfort to know that when Christ returns or we die, we will be found in him. That when God considers us, it won't have an ounce to do with anything we've ever done or haven't done. It will have everything to do with Jesus. That right now in God's eye, we possess his righteousness that we have right now, the surpassingly valuable one in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We don't need to look to or trust in or rely upon anyone or anything else, and certainly not ourselves. We don't need to earn God's favor, and we don't have to. We'll end our time this morning by singing one last hymn. If you have your bolts and turn to page 11, I think this song brings out two of these truths in particular. Verse 1, Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with Him, yet... I look for worldly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. But mine is hope in my Redeemer, though I fall, His love is sure. For Christ has paid for every failing. I am His forevermore. That this great exchange has already taken place, that Jesus took our debts and that we have gained Him. And then the second thing we see, that in Christ we truly have the one that is of surpassing value. If you look at 3b, In the middle it says, And mine are keys to Zion City, where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. The glorious thing for us is not just that we've been accepted, but that we've been adopted. That we've not just been forgiven before God, but that we've gained Christ. That in him our hearts have found the things that they've always longed for. It's treasure, Christ, and he is ours forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we are overwhelmed by your grace this morning that though we have offered you nothing apart from Christ but rebellion, that in your grace and in your mercy that you would send your son to live for us, to die for us, to raise from the dead for us, at no gain to himself but only gain for us. We pray that more and more that we would cease relying upon our own flesh, that we wouldn't put confidence in ourselves, but that we put our confidence in Christ. We pray that more and more that we would see that Jesus is of surpassing value compared to all the other things that we put our trust in. 
We pray for any non-Christians that might be here with us this morning. We pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would open their eyes to see that all other things compared to Christ are dunk, and that Jesus Christ is infinitely glorious and satisfying, that he stands ready to accept them right now. We pray they would do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can stand with us, and we will sing our last hymn together, Christ is mine forevermore.